From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Corngut. I am a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Today, we're going in a little bit of a different direction, and we're talking about Five Nights at Freddy's. Maybe you're aware, maybe you're not aware, but this is the indie horror franchise video game extended universe, one might say, based on Five Nights at Freddy's. We'll tell you a little bit more about what the actual plot for this game is, in case you don't know. First things first, I want to let you know that the information for today's episode has been brought to you by IGN, Polygon, Collider, Wikipedia. Something exciting about today's episode is our guest. Today we have Jans Holstrom with us. He works for DreadXP, a sister site for Dread Central. And Jans, can you do me a favor and introduce yourself to the Development Hell audience? Hello, Development Hell audience. I'm Jans Holstrom editorial and review writer for Dread XP and their social media manager. Um, we're very excited to have you here today. We have been keeping our eyes on you this whole time because we are big fans of Dread the Unsolved, to which you, I'm going to say, write and host. Do you produce it as well? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i the writer, narrator, producer of Dread the Unsolved for Dread Central, which is a weekly Unsolved Mysteries video feature um, edited by my lovely, lovely wife, um, yeah, I am a big fan. You definitely have like perfect radio voice, and I've been meaning to get you on Development Hell for a long time now. So I'm very happy that you're here. Jans, question for you. What's your general relationship with Five Nights at Freddy's? Well, as a uh, games journalist, I have a very close relationship with the Five Nights at Freddy's franchise. Any games journalist kind of has to 
in this day and age because it's such a huge thing or it, it's become such a huge thing in the last few years. So I'm very familiar with the franchise. For those of us, including myself, that may be a little bit outside of the know, how would you describe what Five Nights at Freddy's is and like kind of a log line as well? Like what's it about and like what is Five Nights at Freddy's? So in broad strokes, it is a game where you play as a security guard at a Chuck E. Cheese-esque establishment where the animatronics want to murder you. I mean, what a vibe. And no wonder it's so popular because it's such a, I don't know, there's such a mood baked in even to just the concept. And when you play the games and see some of the artwork and even like the weird community behind it, it's very unique, very spooky and interesting. What was your first experiences with the game? Were you into it upon discovery? Were you hesitant? Like, what was your initial journey with this title? So I've, I've always spent a lot of time um, trolling different message boards around, you know, the internet looking for new horror. And a few years back, I couldn't tell you the exact year. Someone said, have you tried Five Nights at Freddy's? And I was like, what the hell is a Five Nights at Freddy's? And at that time, you could only get it on Game Jolt, which for you listeners that don't know, Game Jolt is like four rungs below Steam whenever it comes to PC gaming. Not a lot of folks use it. Uh, so I had to go to Game Jolt and I found it and I played it and I was like, this they're onto something here. Like, this is the right mishmash of elements to make something actually really scary. And that was before all the, the lore nonsense that came after. The original game in its purest form was just pure terror. I have not really been able to play it. I've tried multiple times since I think it came out around 2014, a long time ago. And I've really tried <laughs> to play this game, but I'm such a sissy baby when it comes to horror video games. I can do a horror movie. I can watch the grossest of the scariest of the darkest when it comes to film. But when it comes to video games, I just can't do it. I had a hard time playing the Friday the 13th game. I'm pretty sure that wasn't scary. But yeah, the the overall vibe, atmosphere, aesthetic at Five Nights at Freddy's is super, super cool. Kind of undeniable. And has been copied sort of a couple times since its release. Like with a kind of indie horror movie Willy's Wonderland and stuff like that. It's such a big world of games and products. I was wondering, like, what are the best entry points? Like, what are the best games in the series? So if you're like a fresh fan to uh, FNAF, which is what fans shorten it to, FNAF, Five Nights at Freddy's, um, you can always start at the first game. It's still out there. It's affordable. It's a good entry point to just kind of immerse you in the world. What originally drew, drew people in was the first game. So you can always pick that up. And if you like that gameplay, it doesn't really change throughout the series, except for some small tweaks. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can kind of get a feel for if that's what you're after by playing the first game. Or you could read the books, but probably don't do that. Yeah, I noticed that there's a, a ton of books on the market now, which is weird and kind of cool that I don't know that this whole universe has expanded so much and kind of always on an indie level. This game has never really gone big leagues, right? It's even now in 2022 titles coming out are fairly indie. Well, recently um, I'm within the last few months, five nights at Freddy's security breach released, which is the first full 3d five nights at Freddy's game, kind of triple a double a AA or triple a production horror game and it's a huge departure from what fans are used to in this indie space and it's gotten a little bit of a little bit of pushback from the fans because of how different it is from what they're used to and is it a little glossier or like a little more i don't know mainstream for lack of a better word the the previous five nights at freddy's games up until security breach were fixed camera areas that you stay in and it's kind of a plate spinning simulator you have to Mm -hmm. make sure the doors are shut or turn on lights to scare away animatronics but it generally takes place in one area with very little mm-hmm. animation. That's what made it so effective. Very little animation, but the animation that did have accentuated the scares. With Security Breach, it's a full 3D world that you can explore. And it kind of made it feel too polished, too glossy for what fans were used to. If it's okay with you, I'm going to try to fumble through my interpretation of this game's uh, basic history and what it's about. 
Are you ready to hear me? I'm do super my best? excited. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm ready to succeed. So Five Nights at Freddy's is a horror franchise, truly, created by a, a man by the name of Scott Cawthon. It began with a 2014 little video game that we've already touched base on. And since then, it's exploded in popularity and has fans all over the world and countless games, merchandise, books, all sorts of crap. The original game takes place in a fictional restaurant, sort of like a fictional pizzeria uh, by the name of Freddy Fazbar's Pizza. So as Jan said earlier, it's kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese, 90s, crappy, sort of fun birthday house vibe. And the mascot is this animatronic bear by the name of Freddy Fazbear. In the games, generally, you're playing as a nighttime employee who has to use different things at his disposal, like security cameras, the doors that open and close, vents. These are the kind of things that you have to use to ensure that these hostile, terrifying animatronic characters that come alive at night don't kill you. As Jans was saying, after the first game, there was this expansion of universe and an expansion of lore and and, and sort of this content or, or, or these clues arose through mini games within the game, Easter eggs and various sort of clues around the location. It, we get to the point where we realized that uh, the pizzeria was sort of the location for a bunch of child murders that were carried out by the original co-owners and that these violent, uh, supernatural, possessed animatronics are actually <laughs> possessed by the angry spirits of the children that were murdered. Is is this correct? You're you're actually. I'm actually impressed with how on point you actually are about this. Wow. Um, For the first so, few games, anyway. <laughs> so how how would you describe like? You know, what's going on in Five Nights at Freddy's? Like, like what, what's going on with, with these animatronic monsters? What are they up to? Why are they Why are they so murderous? Oh, that's a big, big question with a big answer. Uh, at this point, it's gone so far beyond what was originally planned, I think, by uh, Scott Cawthon. Originally, the first Five Nights at Freddy's, there was really no explanation that's also one of the reasons people liked it is vague you know you watch a good horror movie where there's not a big exposition dump at the end and you're just fine with that kind of vagueness that's how the first five nights at freddy's was so you have these animatronics at night they get a little bit wild and they attack you that's the <laughs> first game in the second <laughs> game the robots are programmed to identify children and mm-hmm. and and also they're programmed to a like notice criminals. It's been a minute, but I'm going off of my memory now. So in the second game, you're a nighttime employee that the animatronics have identified as a criminal of sorts. And they're trying to murder you for that. The third game doesn't take place in a Freddy Fazbear's. It it takes place in a haunted house attraction where the disused and discarded animatronics are brought in as part of the attraction and there is one of them that is possessed by the spirit of the man who was killing the children that is hunting nice. you through the Halloween attraction. That sounds fucking the cool. People weren't sold on five nights at Freddy's because of the scares. The lore is what drug most people in. You look at this story of killer animatronics and you go, why, why are they killing? And <laughs> Scott Cawthon insists that he had all this planned out, but I, I maintain that Scott Cawthon is a liar. Mm-hmm. Interesting. He put in a, a few small, a few small teases, little Easter eggs in the games that he's made. And from there, a YouTube channel called the game theorists took on his game and tried to dig in. And they started lore crafting theory crafting about what they think is going on. And directly based on what happened in those videos, those things started happening in the games. I think Scott Cawthon's just been making it up this whole time, taking cues from the theory crafting community. That's a little like evil genius of a move because he's technically not stealing because he can just say, no, you were right. Like this is exactly. what I was thinking the whole time, but he's stealing these probably fairly brilliant ideas from young creators without paying them. And it's made him stupidly rich. 
you know, Scott Cawthon started out making Christian platformers that did. Sorry, terribly. what is exactly is a is a Christian platformer for, for like, people that may not know? <laughs> like a side scroller, it's like you play as Noah, get all the sheep to the ark, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and then <laughs> people played fun. it, and they said your character designs are fucking creepy. And he went, really? And they said, you should make a horror game with your terrible character designs, you psychopath. <laughs> and he's like, I will. And that's that's oh actually my. the story. That's how Five Nights at Freddy's came about. They said his Christian game characters were too creepy. It's truly Uncanny Valley to the max and not on purpose. It's just like naturally creepy. I kind of love that. Although this guy himself, IMO, seems like a bit of a creep himself. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. But um, you seem to have some very interesting insight into the FNIF online community. And I have questions about them. It, they seem much larger than I was expecting. Who, like, who are we generally seeing in these online communities? Are they like younger people? Are, are like millennials? Like, So I'd say that they majority skew younger but there's also people my age you know i'm i'm 32 and i enjoy the series for the nostalgia factor i'm i'm a fan of found footage i'm a fan of uh analog horror so things like that grainy security cam footage making everything feel a little bit lost tapes where you feel like it's kind of tabby you shouldn't be watching that and also Mm -hmm. integrating things like the chuck e cheese which i grew up you know with chuck e cheese So it appeals to me in that sense. And people my age are kind of in it for that. The younger demographic skews towards wanting to fuck the animatronics. I know this is, this is what Pinterest has disclosed to me earlier today. So I do believe. Yes. I was going to say, we we can't talk about the younger fans of five nights at Freddy's without talking about how badly they want to fuck these animatronics. So interesting. Yeah. I wanted to bring to the table, but I didn't know how to do it the topic of all of the furry art that I have encountered. Look, I wasn't looking for furry art. I was looking for Five Nights at Freddy's art. A lot of this content was turned into like romantic fan art. It's very strange. Is is this something you find the generation is doing like specifically with Five Nights at Freddy's or are they sort of doing this with a lot of um, anthropomorphic properties? You, you kind of see it in every property but it's much larger in the FNAF community just because every game has new models for the animatronics, which I think it it just gives furry artists a whole smorgasbord of things to make fuckable. And it's just resonated with people. And we can, I have a point I want to make, but we'll talk about it later when we're talking about how Scott Cawthon's kind of a dick. Definitely the younger furry community, they just love Five Nights at Freddy's. I don't know anything about the furry communities and I'm not here to kink shame anyone. But I, I I don't know. Can I assume that they're like fairly queer leaning? Because if oh, they very, are very much so. And they're aware of Scott Cawthorn's politics? Um, yeah, we can I mean we can always talk yeah, about we that. Should, I, I we should maybe maybe it's time to talk about Scott Cawthorn. Maybe it's just the moment. Can I give you my preliminary knowledge on who this man is and you can help me inform? Oh, absolutely. So Scott was born in 1978 and has been developing video games since he was a kid in 1994. He joined this weird-ass sounding group called Hope Animation, which, as you said earlier, he was making, like, Christian-based games for children surrounding, unquote, Christian values, whatever that might mean. Um, And then an early game that he was developing by the name of Chipper and Sons Lumber Company don't know if it was Christian or not. You'll have to let me know. Um, yeah, but people were letting him know that it was fucking weird and that the characters looked like scary animatronic monsters. And while Scott at first thought, oh, nobody loves me, I guess I'm through, he instead uh, turned these creepy characters into an actually scary game with Five Nights at Freddy's. Um Things are looking good for our friend Scott until June 2021 when he was trending on Twitter because uh, his political donations were were made publicly available and fans and media were able to see that he is 
like donating quite a bit of money to Donald Trump's campaign. It didn't take long for Scott to confirm on Reddit that he, yes, is a Republican, is very conservative, very Christian, and is pro-life. You can imagine that there was a response to this from the internet. Reddit seemed to welcome him, but other social platforms like Twitter, the gay community, and liberal communities reacted really poorly to this news. And it wasn't long after that where he announced that he was going to retire. Uh, Did I cover the recent drama of Scott Cawthon good enough? How did you feel about it? Oh, yeah, for for sure. I feel whenever the news initially came out, I thought, well, obviously, you know, he used to make Christian games. He's gonna, he's always mm-hmm. kind of seemed like that straight-laced conservative Christian values kind of guy who struggled mm-hmm. with his horror game. Yeah, I, I, I like how you have one half of the community who said, fuck this guy. You know, he's supporting people who want to destroy our way of life and how we live. He doesn't accept us, and so we're not going to interact with his stuff. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, you have the other half of uh, the very large queer community that plays Five Nights at Freddy's saying, fuck him. It's not his anymore. We adopted this and we're not going to leave this property just because he's a piece of shit. And I think that that's the way to go. I mean, Uh yes, uh, you may have bought his games. You may have supported him at some point, but it's been so embraced by different communities that they're not. It's it's kind of a J.K. Rowling situation. People didn't stop enjoying Harry Potter. They just started hating J.K. Rowling. And that's well, kind of what we're seeing with with Scott Cawthon. It's some people, right? Like some fans who I guess this property is really important to them have chosen to divide the art from the artist. And I think that's, you know, a, a very important conversation to have about both sides of that perspective. But a lot of people did give up Harry Potter. I personally did not give up Buffy in the wake of comprehending that Joss Whedon does seem like a piece of shit. But I don't know if that doesn't mean I shouldn't one day. I don't know if we need to get into the politics of separating art from artist, but I find it really interesting to hear that the queer community said, fuck this, we like it, he can get fired and we'll sort of hold on to it. Yeah, I I like, I think that both points of view, without getting too deep into it, are perfectly mm-hmm. valid in how they want to handle it. But I think mm-hmm. that after, you know, since 2014, you've got seven years of this franchise that people have grown up with in a sense and that they love. And to hear that mm-hmm. the creator is a piece of shit, the fans shouldn't be punished for his misdeeds. However, they've mm-hmm. experienced these characters is still valid no matter what. Yeah. And there's a, deep attachment to it because there's a huge community there's tons of merch it's it's an industry at this point which means it's really resonating with people i was surprised i don't know why i was surprised to learn of his unfortunate politics but there's something about like the mm, nostalgic nuance of this game that made me think this had to have come from someone like me but but it was interesting to hear you say that the first game was super simple and not didn't, didn't necessarily have a lot of thought behind it. And that started to actually develop, cannibalize from within its own community. So maybe he isn't necessarily responsible for the overall aesthetic and vibe. Maybe it was the fans. Yeah, my, my perspective on this is not unique. A lot of people think that the community, and I will say straight up, you can quote me on this, the community created Five Nights at Freddy's. And I think it's totally within their bounds to not want to give it up. It was a almost a crowdfunded effort. It was a dude that hit gold on a scary idea. And from there, the community bolstered this man and held him up. And it sucks that he betrayed them like he did. But I don't think that you can ever really kill FNAF now that it's gotten rolling. Is it still going as strong as it was in its heyday? Yeah, for sure. There's still a very dedicated contingent of people who are going to, you know, you look at the most recent release, Security Breach. People had complaints, but they're also playing it. They're still engaging with it. There's still fan art of the new characters. There's 
of course, Ludard of all the characters, it's still rolling strong. And people are happy in a sense because this one reportedly Scott had no real input on after he left. It's made by Steel Wool Studios, completely new game developer instead of Scott Games, which was Scott Cawthon's <laughs> development studio, just him, Scott Games. Scott Games. Get out of here. Scott Games. Get out of here, Scott Games. Yeah, so um, Steel Wool Studios <laughs> took over for this installment, and it's kind of the rebirth, in a way, of FNAF. How big would you say this new studio is? Like, are they indie, or is there money behind it? So Steel Wool was previously contracted to work on uh, Five Nights at Freddy's Help Wanted VR, the first VR Five Nights at Freddy's game. And it was still a pretty indie production then. I'd say the team, I don't think the team's more than like 20 people. But this new entry is a significant step up from what they were doing before. So it might, with sales of this and hiring new people, might push them into the AAA sphere just by association with such a huge franchise. What is AAA versus AA? So a AAA studio is someone like EA, like Electronic Arts, Square Enix, these Mm -hmm. big tentpole studios that kind of hold up. I don't want to say hold up the video game industry because they absolutely don't. But they're kind of the big ones that everyone knows that's putting out big first party games for consoles. And then you Mm -hmm. move down to AA, which are things like. I'm trying to think of some AA studios, Devolver, if you're familiar with Devolver Digital. They do this thing where they kind of are like, we're indie, but we also release 15 games a year and make millions. DreadXP, <laughs> we don't put out 15 games a year. We are <laughs> no. We are firmly indie. Um, that's the great thing about indie is we engage with these smaller creators who want to make something mm-hmm. weird. Like a AAA studio is not going to make Sucker for Love. They're not going to fund Sucker for Love. I want to talk, I, I, I was going to end with some Sucker for Love talk, but since we're here, I think our audience deserves to know about the latest Dread XP game. So we're going to take a little bit of a sidebar in the midst of the Scott Cawthon bullshit. For me to ask you, as someone that's, you know, high up there at Dread XP, what is this recent release of yours, Sucker for Love? What's the deal? Because people want to know. I love Sucker for Love, Um, and that's not just because I've been doing all the social media marketing promotion for it. I've been (laughs) kind of in the trenches with this game. This is my first big release with Dread XP since they brought me on. So it's a game where you are trying to date eldritch horrors personified as sexy women. (laughs) It's kind of based on the 90s, 90s style anime, visual novels with a Lovecraftian mm-hmm. twist. And a lot of people see it and they go, this is very cutesy, this is very tame, but it's actually pretty steeped in that kind of Junji Ito Japanese horror. Uh-huh. So I encourage you anybody. It scary? It does, yeah, definitely. There's three chapters, and each chapter has different scares. The third chapter is especially scary. The art done by um, Akabaka, the developer, He did all the art for the game, and he draws some absolutely terrifying things. You wouldn't think that you could be scared by a static image, but he will make it happen. Oh, I know I can be. I'm scared by everything. I don't know how I'm so into horror, because I'm truly the biggest wuss on the face of the planet. And I'm not saying that as an apology. Um, I celebrate how much of a wuss I am. So other than Sucker for Love, what other... Just a couple... Give me like one other recent title from Dread XP that people may want to check out or may have heard of uh spookware everybody should check out spookware it's a bunch of horror themed mini games micro games is what we call them based on things like um one of the mini games is grabbing paper boats off the street like an it um <laughs> other ones involve like shooting zombies or roasting a rat o- over an open fire. It's very goofy, very mm. tongue-in-cheek, and it's for fans of horror. If you love the horror of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there's something for you in Spookware. You heard it here, guys. Sucker for Love and Spookware. Buy them right now, um, or I'm going to have to contact the authorities. I think that we've talked a little bit enough about um, this creator of the series. I wanted to make sure our listeners sort of had context on this dude for this episode. Because uh, I had a big interest in covering this topic for a long time, but I actually did not know about the donations to the Trump campaign, about the pro-life issue. I didn't know about all of this messy stuff. And I I have just this feeling that other visual horror fans like myself maybe aren't necessarily aware 
of some of these heavier topics that baseline this franchise. And I just wanted everyone to know going in. And on that note, Jans, would you be interested in learning a little bit about the Blumhouse adaptation that's been in the works since 2015? Absolutely. I am a fan of Blumhouse and their weird ass (laughs) ways. Well, you know, I'm glad that you said that. Before we get into this will they, won't they moment of Blumhouse and Five Nights at Freddy's, Jans, do you have any favorite Blumhouse moments? Any least favorite Blumhouse moments? What's, uh, What's what's Jan's relationship with Blumhouse? I thought Blumhouse was a world beater whenever they first started producing films, but it seems like a case of diminishing oh, no. returns. I'm sorry. What is what is that? What is you said a world beater? Yeah, world beater. Do, do you guys not have that phrase in? <laughs> I mean, you might, but I don't know what it is. Tell me what it means. Oh, okay. So a world beater is just like the big new thing, something that's going to blow everything else out of the water. A world beater beats the whole world in, in quality. Okay. So you thought it was going to be that. Were you right? For a, for a moment I was with things like insidious. Everybody loved insidious. I fucking love insidious. But then you started kind of, and I mean, props to them for putting a bunch of money into kind of indie productions and putting out some stranger horror. But a lot of it is, it's a game of diminishing returns. Yeah, that gets into Roger Corman territory in a way that I don't disrespect, but not all Blumhouse productions are created equal. We'll have some Oscar caliber. Well, you know, just because it's a lot of horror is Oscar caliber, but you have some Oscar caliber in the mix with Get Out and a bunch of other titles. But then you also have some of the worst horror in recent memory, like Fantasy Island and Truth or Dare. Some of my favorite Blum moments are definitely the Insidious franchise. I'm an Insidious 3 apologist. I just think this big bad in that one is so scary. They call him the man that can't breathe. I'm a queen with asthma, so I relate to his journey, and it really scared me. And I liked that. I'm also a big fan of the original Unfriended. I don't know if it gets enough love these days. I think it did get a love when it came out, but we got to respect and remember Unfriended. Um, I'm trying to think of other Blumhouse moments. I did not like Halloween 2018 that much. I'm sorry I say it too much on this podcast. What? But I, but I'm, and I'm, and to make it worse, I like quite liked Halloween Kills. Uh, I should probably cut that out because people will unsubscribe. <laughs> so I haven't seen Halloween Kills yet. I'm waiting for it to come to a service where what? I can rent it or buy it. I don't go to movie theaters because of this. There's a there's a thing happening. Um, Halloween Kills has been out of movie theaters though for oh I need to find thirty it. years, thirty five okay. years maybe. But Halloween 2018, I'm shocked that you didn't like it because I'm a huge <laughs> fan. I'm a big Halloween fan mm-hmm. in general, and I think it's oh. I hate Rob Zombie's Halloween films. Yeah, if if, yeah, fans tend to. People that like the movies tend to hate those because they're disrespectful and rude. Rob Zombie, to take a quick aside and get this on on audio tape for all the fans out there that are like, oh, we've read Jan Tolstrom's work. We, we hang out on the DreadXP Twitter. I want you all to know Rob Zombie has made one good movie. Uh, I think I think there are two. I what are you two, two, Josh? I'm sorry. I think it's pretty obvious what they are. Halloween and Halloween 2. No, I'm kidding. Um, House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects. Why, you don't like Devil's Rejects? Or you don't I like don't. House of a Thousand Corpses? I okay, really I like... Of- House of a Thousand Corpses is the one good oh, movie God. because Rob Zombie has such a knack for blending classic Americana with this gringy, dirty, like, underworld shit that really yeah, shines in House of a Thousand Corpses. It does. It just works. The and Devil's Rejects... Uh-huh. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I want to hear what you have to say about oh, the I was Devil's say, Rejects. The, the Devil's Rejects is just so mean spirited that it's hard to enjoy yeah. after a viewing or so. And I don't oh, like how Rob I've Zombie never enjoyed it. Rob Zombie kind of took us all to the side and said, "Hey, Bill Mosley in this movie is a fucking monster, but we want you to somehow identify with him, so we're going to kind of make him the good guy." Yeah, that didn't go so well for Don't Breathe Two in twenty twenty one. And I don't think you could have made The Devil's Rejects in 2021. But I remember seeing it when I was like, I don't know, 15 with my dad and thinking, ooh, edgy. Um, and that 
resonance has stuck with me has stuck with me ever since. I've tried to get into the Lords of Salem and I've turned it off within like 20 minutes. Just time. watch Rosemary's Baby. You get about the same experience <laughs> with less white people with dreadlocks. So do you have any favorite Blumhouses though other than Halloween 2018? People want to know. Definitely Insidious. Oh, fuck and yes. Was, was the first Conjuring Blumhouse refresh me? I, it's so confusing. No, it was Warner. I know. It's shocking that it's not. Uh, it's, yeah, it is shocking. Oh, and um, The Deep House, if anybody has seen that. It's kind of lesser hey, known. Incredible. Was that Blumhouse? Uh, they, did American, they did American Distro for it. So those filmmakers, I believe they're French. I don't remember their names. Do you know offhand what those filmmakers' names are? I don't, and I wrote so much news about them for Dread Central, and I've already forgotten I, their names. I've written so many about them, too. Uh, they made one of my favorite movies ever. Their second film after Inside was called Livid, and it's a stupid, weird, incredibly gorgeous vampire haunted house movie. Get into it. I'm a fan of Blumhouse. What can I say? They oh, yeah, uh, I'm, they deliver the fun. I'm a fan of Blumhouse. Like I will still, you know, like the Deep House came out last year. I'll still sit down mm-hmm. and watch a Blumhouse movie. It's just not the same level of excitement as it was before when I was like, oh, a new Blumhouse just dropped. Fucking get in. Oh, now yeah, it's just yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. hey, new, new Blumhouse dropped. I guess I'll check that out. Like maybe not, not necessarily. Do you and you don't have to have an answer for this because negativity is toxic. But do you have, like, a least favorite, worst, like, what the fuck Blumhouse? Because I think for me, it has to have, it has to be Truth or Dare, because that was just unwatchable. Oh, damn. I was going to say Truth or Dare as well. (laughs) That's fair. It was so bad. Lucy Hale, what are you doing? Maybe this is what you deserve. I don't know. I don't know for sure. That was our little introduction to the world of Blumhouse. And now I'm going to tell you how that incorporates with this maybe... Maybe it's going to get made. Maybe it won't get made. Adaptation of Five Nights at Freddy's. So back in April of 2015, Warner Brothers initially acquired the rights to the franchise. And they got Seth Graham Smith, uh, Roy Lee, and David Katzenberg to produce. Um, Graham Smith, who who did a bunch of Tim Burton projects and is very horror entrenched, uh, said that he was really excited to make an insane and terrifyingly, weirdly adorable movie. Um, in July of 2015, Gil Keenan signed on to direct and co-write alongside Tyler Burton Smith. But unfortunately, two years passed, nothing happened, and the only update that we got in January of 2017 was from Coffin, who said something along the lines of that problems within the movie industry um, as a whole... Uh, were the reasons for the delay, whatever that may have meant, and that they were met with several roadblocks and delays, and that they were back at square one as of January 2017th. And he continued by saying, so this time he promised, unquote, to be involved with the movie from day one this time. And that's something extremely important to me. I want this movie to be something I'm excited for the fan base to see. Which is funny, after hearing what you said about him possibly just copying the the like detailed concept from fans, like what is he going to bring to the table here? Hard to I say. I think the other issue with Scott Cawthon is that he's very precious about his work, and I feel like that's led to a lot of the issues with this production. Interesting. Um, is that like uh, just a personal theory, or is this based on like what you've read? I've read a couple things stating that he's hard to work with with scriptwriters coming up with a story that he's happy with. I I think based on what I've read that the problem with the Five Nights at Freddy's adaptation is its creator. That would make sense. He does seem like a problematic king. But in March of 2017, it seemed like they had migrated from Warner Brothers to Blumhouse. Do you remember this? It was I remember this almost like it was yesterday in 2017 when he tweeted a picture at Blumhouse Productions, which is like his way of sort of teasing that Blumhouse was going to be the studio behind the movie. Do you remember this happening? I do, yeah. It was so weird. I can't believe it was so long ago. 2017 feels like 
truly another universe. But here we are. And just a month later, director at the time, Gil Keenan, announced that he was no longer directing um, since they detached from Warner Brothers. In February 2018, Blumhouse revealed on Twitter that Harry Potter director Chris Columbus was the new director for the film. And he was also going to be producing it alongside Cawthon and Jason Blum. In August of 2018, Cawthon came out and said something along the lines that the film itself was going to be based on the third and the second game. And that they were probably going to see release in 2020. Do you know offhand like what the difference between the second and third game are from from the franchise? Like what might be stand out about those two entries? The third game introduces um, Springtrap, which is one of the animatronics, not an animatronic, actually. It was a spring powered suit and also, I guess, an animatronic. But if a person was using it, the spring locks wouldn't engage. But the main antagonist of the series is in the suit and the ghosts turn them on and it springs shut and crushes him to death inside the suit. So that's that's probably what they're going to go for. That big uh, Michael Afton, who is the antagonist, uh, they're probably mm-hmm. going to build up to that big reveal or big, you know, highlight moment. Interesting. So wait, so he would kill people in the suit or like the the scary no, evil no, man this the, the suit itself was built uh-huh. in such a way that if it was engaged while a person was in it it would kill the person inside the suit uh-huh That'd so cool. the yeah the ghost kids smashed a man to death inside that suit the main antagonist oh that would be very like uh yeah saw level destruction horror i would kind of be into seeing that yeah it's very much um, a saw inspired situation i think do you feel like this this film adaptation was going to have to lean towards like gore and disgust or do you think it was going to be more cutesy fantasy horror? So the games themselves are absolutely tame. There's no blood like anywhere in the in the games. It's the cool. text is kind of creeping dread and sudden jump scares. The subtext is where or the hidden stuff is where all the violence is. So you get descriptions of violence and the descriptions are actually pretty brutal. There's people getting their souls scooped out and shit that the series gets really weird. Can you tell me some of the weirder stuff? I love hearing the soul scooped out stuff. That's weird and scary sounding. Is there yeah. Any, like, stand in darkness moments that you can share. Uh, Michael Afton, the main antagonist, his daughter, I want to say, or his partner's daughter, one of them gets her inside scooped out by a machine that puts her soul into a robot. It's very dumb. Uh, also, there's the suit crushing a man to death. And also the, the whole series kind of revolves around what is the bite of 87. It's the this bite? big meme. Yeah, the bite. It's this big meme now that in 1987, one of the animatronics fucking chomped a kid's head. And kind of the whole series lore spirals out from there. That's kind of the instigating event that kicks off all of the lore was in 1987. A child got champed, just chomped (laughs) right on by Freddy Fazbear animatronic. The fourth game is actually you playing and you don't find this out until you find all the secrets and everything. So spoilers. The fourth game is you playing as that child from his hospital coma bed. And dreaming about Whoa. how uh, dreaming about evil animatronics. So there's like warped nightmare versions of the animatronics in that one. I mean, that's stupid, but I love it. I love how cerebral and weird the series is. And you don't, I don't, you might be able to correct me on this, but I feel like you don't get that a lot in horror games. Like we have the cerebral Silent Hill series and maybe Fatal Frame, but I feel like we don't get that like super bonkers creative out there horror as often in popular video games. Am I wrong? Uh, The indie sphere is full of games that Mm -hmm. easily trounce Five Nights at Freddy's. And that's the weird thing. A lot of these things in Five Nights at Freddy's are never explicitly stated by Scott Cawthon. These are just community things that have become like the word of law. He's, he very rarely Uh directly addresses theories. He just lets people do things and they kind of become part of the community lore. So the lore that exists for Five Nights at Freddy's isn't necessarily the lore that Scott Cawthon's going off of anymore, or at all, since he's retired. Interesting. So we were talking about how there was like these 
children that were murdered by previous owners possibly possessing the animatronics. Now you're telling me that um, I'm assuming this, what'd you say the name of the main antagonist was again? I think Michael Afton. I keep thinking Michael Scott. Okay. Well, Michael is, I mean, is he like, is, was I'm guessing in, that he may have been like the previous owner that was killing children. Uh, he and his partner designed the animatronics and Please? put them uh-huh. into service. And the books kind of go into the story of the co-founder of the animatronic building. Oh, there's a lot out there. Um, Earlier last year, I did Mm -hmm. a Dread XP book club uh, series on the Five Nights at Freddy's novels. The three that Mm -hmm. tie into the story. It's kind of a weird place. You have three books uh, written by Scott Cawthon and Kara Breed Wisely that mm-hmm. cover events kind of in between the games and during the games for more backstory. Then you have a whole series of 15 to 20 so far, new ones being released every day, young adult novels kind of in the vein of Goosebumps. They just have the Five Nights at Freddy's name, and then they're telling interconnected, or not interconnected, but unconnected horror stories from that universe. Kind of a Freddy's Nightmares or Friday the 13th the series mm-hmm. kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. So it's very odd. That sounds I don't know. I'm I'm a little. It's too bad about the politics because I'm obsessed with everything that you're talking about. So you've dug into some of these actual some of these books. I was wondering if you could tell us like are, what what were some of the standouts? Like were there any specific spooky standout subplots or plot from the book that you can sort of give us? Okay, the first book, The Silver Eyes, I think is the name of it. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Standout standout moment is that a group of teens who were traumatized by Freddy Fazbear's go to burn it down and they find that it's already gone and that there's a mall being constructed in its place through goofing around this empty half constructed mall. They find that the builders have just encased the original Freddy Fazbear's in concrete in the middle of the mall, hiding it from everyone. Whoa. Liminal drama. I love that. That is stupid and kind of great. The Yeah, the liminal vibes for the series, anything that's sort of set in a 90s, like, kid's birthday palace, it's just an easy way, way in to, to spook someone of our age, I feel like. I, um, I feel like yeah. the Five Nights... Oh, I feel like the Five Nights, Freddy, Five Nights at Freddy's series has kind of inspired this boom in analog horror that we're seeing. I don't know if you're familiar with... Uh, the Mandela Catalog or Gemini Home Entertainment, Local 58, all these YouTube mm-hmm. channels that are making low, lo-fi analog horror that scratches that same itch and you don't have to support Scott Cawthon. So it's like a win-win. Can you do me a favor and repeat a couple of those for some of us that may have missed it on the first round? Because oh, absolutely. We, we want to, as you said it, we want to scratch that itch, but we don't necessarily want to support this dude. So can you give us that rundown just one more time? All right, I'm going to give you all, everybody out there, I'm going to give you three excellent YouTube series, horror analog series, The Mandela Catalog, Gemini Mm -hmm. Home Entertainment, Mm -hmm. and Local 58. What's the Mandela, am I saying this right, catalog? What's that that one about? The Mandela Catalog uh, started as a warning, kind of a, a government warning message saying, if you see someone that looks like you, here are the steps you need to hide. And all of this is done kind of in that old warning style, you know, public service uh-huh. announcement kind of thing. And it's like, you need to hide. If you can't hide, you need to fight. And if you can't fight, you need to kill the thing that looks like you because it is an altar. It is not supposed to be there. And Whoa. then the signal gets hijacked and it's like, if you see any, you get a whole nother set of instructions. It's like, run if you can, hide if you can. If you can't do any of those things, kill yourself. There can only be one of us. Like it, it goes in <laughs> weird, weird places. A Mandela catalog is ongoing. The second volume just dropped. It's free to watch on YouTube and it is top notch analog horror. I'm scared already. Thank you for those recs. I'm absolutely going to check them out. Um, but to wrap up this troubled production journey for the Blumhouse adaptation of Five Nights at Freddy's. Um, so in November 20th of 2020, there was a Reddit post from Cawthon that discussed a few of the scrapped screenplays. 
and it was followed by an announcement that the film did, in fact, now have a finished screenplay, and it was going to shoot in 2021. However, in September of 2021, Blumhouse came out to Collider and basically said that the script still had issues, and they had lost their director, possibly leaving the project in limbo. Um, is there any other details from the world of this adaptation that I may have missed that you may have insights into? Uh, you pretty much nailed it. I I think that it's something that people really want. And I think that it can make a lot of money. Like, um, Josh, I want to ask you Mm -hmm. earnestly right now, who's Mm -hmm. who's your, who's your pick for director for five nights with everything you know about the series and the things that I've told you and the things that you've researched, who would you pick to direct this film? I don't know how to say his name, but I have a pick. Um, to Andre uh, Orvidal. He's the guy that per, that directed Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark recently, and I'm and I was a oh. fan of that. Oh, he uh, he also did the Autopsy of Jane Doe and Troll Hunter. Oh, those are both very good. Fun right? fact. Fun fun fact about Yawns. <laughs> I uh, I interviewed the composer for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Anna Drubich. <gasps> She's very nice and very Russian. You can check that out on Dread Central. Uh, I absolutely will, because the music in that was great. And I, 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 I don't know if everyone loves that film, but I certainly do. Yeah, okay, so that's fan. my pick. Do you, do you have a pick? Uh, yeah, and this is kind of out there. Quentin Depew, director of Deer Skin, Rubber... Uh-huh. Oh my god. Really? Interesting. What are you doing? What are you are you you're you're out for violence? You're out for blood. I think that if you gave him the budget and said it's a movie about animatronics that do murders, I think he could really bring that gonzo <laughs> action to the screen. Uh if not him then uh what is his name? Uh the guy that did Mandy would also be another good choice. Oh, okay. Yeah, big time. I mean, Spectre Vision generally I think would do a good job with this one. Um, although, you know, we already have a version of this with Nick Cage that wasn't very good. I am. You know what? People hate Willy's Wonderland. A lot of horror <laughs> fans that I've talked to hate Willy's Wonderland. It's not my favorite. I think it's a piece of genius. Okay. They T- look at tell this. Tell me more. They, oh, of course. Of course. They look at the Five Nights at Freddy's franchise and they go, people are hungry for killer animatronics. And they go, cool, we don't want to spend a lot of money on this. And they're like, can we get Nicolas Cage? And I'm like, yeah. And he's cheaper if he doesn't talk. And they're like, okay, <laughs> okay, cool, we can do that. But what about the animatronics? And they're like, we'll just get people in suits. No one gives a shit. And then Nicolas Cage oh gives probably the third best performance of his life. At one point, he makes love to a pinball machine. I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember that part. Mm-hmm. It's just pure madness. And I, <laughs> I love it. It doesn't explain it barely explains anything like it goes over why the animatronics exist nicholas cage is never explained in that film he just drinks a bunch of energy drinks and fights giant puppets listen do do i want to take that away from the world no i don't i don't it just i I think there was because of the ravenous hunger for five nights at freddy's i think the expectations were a little too high for that one yeah i don't think you're gonna get you know the detailed If I am making a Five Nights at Freddy's movie, the main thing I'm going to want is really good practical animatronic effects for Uh the animatronics. And Willy's Wonderland definitely didn't deliver on that front. No, I wouldn't say that it did. Um, Have you seen the Banana Splits movie? I have, and I thought that was pretty okay as well. I haven't seen that. I can't put this as a fact... But I think maybe that got made in lieu of a Five Nights at Freddy's movie at some point. It kind of feels um, that way. And it goes hard on the gore. Does it? Um, I think it's from the director who brought us Slumber Party Massacre remake, which also was gory as hell. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say Dude Bro Party Massacre 3. And I was like, oh, man, someone no. else has seen my favorite film. <laughs> I've, I've heard of it through Dread XP. Yeah, it is. Uh, I have kind of baptized all of them in the church of Dude Bro Party Massacre <laughs> 3. I mean, for people that may not know, what's the deal? Dude Bro Party Massacre 3 <laughs> is presented uh-huh. as a movie that was banned in every country everywhere. But someone before it got banned managed to record it off of public access station in the 90s. So you're watching this like kind of scan line VHS commercials occasionally pop in. 
recording of this movie called Dude Bro Party Massacre 3. And it's presented so goofily, but it instead turns the genre of slashers on its head. It's so transcendent. It's the (laughs) smartest horror movie I've ever seen, and I'm sad that those guys didn't get to do more. Well, you know, maybe they will one day. You know, maybe Development Hall, maybe we'll do an episode on on number four. Who knows? Maybe we'll tiptoe into our conclusion territory. Yeah, let's let's tip on tiptoe through the tulips like in every Blumhouse movie. <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad you said it first because I was going to have to say it if you did not. So something I do on this podcast is me and my guest, we're Hollywood, we're the moment we get to decide if a movie will or will not get made. Now, that has to be a combination of do we want it to get made and do we think it'll get made? So you do have to consider both of those concepts in your heart as we make this answer. But Jans, are we ever going to see a theatrical adaptation of FNAF, Five Nights at Freddy's? Yes, I, I think <gasps> I think we are. We we can't not at this point. It's so it's a multi million, maybe even billion dollar industry, uh, the FNAF mm-hmm. industry. I don't think that Hollywood's going to let that not, they're not going to leave that money on the table. It will get done in some form or another. Do you think they were spooked away due to the political issue? Or do you think it was the fact that he's just impossible to work with or who knows what? I, I think that the production problems probably started as soon as it was announced. And the recent, <laughs> uh, nonsense with scott coffin i don't think affected it too terribly much because as we know it's hollywood they can always just dumpster him and because i'm assuming someone bought the rights mm-hmm. to do okay. this so they could just dumpster well, coffin and make it however they wanted and it'd actually be easier to go to the fans and go we're making a five nights at freddy's movie with no scott coffin involvement and everyone would woo! go Fuck yeah woo! <laughs> good yeah so i i think that there's it's going to happen i i'm going to just give an estimation right right now. We're going to see it in February of 2025. Wow, not too far, not too soon. A safe assumption. Okay, well, I'm going to take your word on it because you're closer to the core than I am. You heard it, everyone. We're going to get a Five Nights at Friday's movies. One of the reasons why I think maybe you are right is that there's been updates on this as recently as September 2021. Not good updates, but updates are better than no updates at all in terms of movies getting fried in development help. So Daddy Blum, what are you doing? Are you going to make it? We would like to know. Um, Jans, I'm wondering, if you wanted to be found, where could people find you on the internet? Oh, on the internet. I was about to say, don't come near my house. I'll, mm-mm, I can't, mm-mm. can't do that. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> Uh, on the internet, you can find me running the social media pages at DreadXP underscore on Twitter, DreadXP Games on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to just interact with me as a person, you can find me on Twitter at HorrorPlayed. You can all, I'm everywhere, Josh. I'm everywhere all at <gasps> once. I'm a, I'm a real oh world God. beater. Real world beater. Um, ubiquitous. You can find me on my podcast, Real Professional, which I do with... Dread XP head of productions and assistant producer, uh, Ted Hinchke and Abby Smith. We do a podcast once a week. You can find mm-hmm. that on where you listen to podcasts and you can find me on dread central writing things. You can also find me on dread mm-hmm. central doing a show called dread the unsolved every mm-hmm. Thursday. I drop a new episode mm-hmm. every Thursday. I'm everywhere. Yeah, baby. I'm so, Get I'm so ingrained it. in the dread ecosphere. That if you were to yeah. remove me, it would tumble like a yeah. house of cards. Yeah, don't pull it out. It's like a knife. You got to leave it in um, or you're going to bleed out. Uh, yeah, you're going to bleed you everywhere. Bleed? You got to leave yeah, me Yeah, you don't bleed. You Get outside before you bleed. Um, do you have any any um, hints about upcoming episodes for Dread the Unsolved? Are we allowed to know? Can you give, oh, us, so last, can you give us like last week, clues? Last week we did The Rake, which is a fun internet urban legend this uh oh. this little chunk of the season we're doing creepy pastas so if you've got like little internet mysteries little internet creatures oh. I've, I've probably tipped over the rock and uncovered them i'm gonna make shows oh. about them we're, we're talking about jeff the killer we're talking slender man we're talking 
I already did one on Polybius. <laughs> we're talking <laughs> just all the things like that. We're getting real spooky with it. Um, but if you're not into that, you can watch any of my previous 30 some odd episodes where we talk about real life uh, unsolved murders, disappearances, poisonings, Jack <gasps> of the Ripper, Sasquatch, <gasps> Loch Ness Monster. Oh. There's a lot of it there if that's what you're into. Yeah, if you're not into that, I write, I dance, I sing. Mm-hmm. You know, he there's paints. something for everyone. I paint, I, I do self portraitures of dogs. Mm-hmm. I was so happy to have you with us today, Jans, and I hope to have you back for another episode in the future. All right, well, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with another episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.